So we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and um, we're going to take a break. We're going to take a break this week for reasons I'm about to tell you, and we'll take a little break next week, and I'll do something Christmassy. Um, but we are, that's our text for today. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. In other words, a right and timely word is extremely valuable. Did any of you, by chance, read Dr. Young's GOL post yesterday in response to what happened in Connecticut? Um, he wrote something that I thought was just wonderful. In fact, I emailed him, and I was scared to email him, you know, but I was just like, I'm about to request that he do something different than what he already did, and I'm just thinking, you know. But I just said, more people need to hear that than are going to hear that on a Saturday GOL post. You know, like, I mean, <clears throat> it was a word fitly spoken. It was like apples of gold in a setting of silver, and it needs to be heard. Um, and I don't think he got the email, you know, Saturday night or whatever, and I'm sitting down, and I've just got this unrest, like, well, I've got this other thing in Sermon on the Mount, we're going to do that, but I just thought, you know, we've got to hear, in here, we at least have to hear what he said, if you haven't heard it, and if you have, we'll hear it again, Um, but I just don't want to read it to you, I want to unpack it, because I think, you know, he may say something about it in there today, I think his GOL post said that he probably wouldn't, just that's the method he thought was best to, to speak it on GOL, but... I know that he's probably not going to unpack it like in sermon form. And, um, you know, I just think we can all gain from it. Just thinking about the things that, that he said. So, I'll read you what he said and then, and then we'll unpack it. Dear ones, I didn't know what the right format should be. Addressing the horrors of this week needed to be done, but was tomorrow morning's worship service the best venue? I've chosen GOL hoping that it would reach the most people the fastest and be the most appropriate. Just by the way, go read it there and send it out. You know, I mean, we can put it on Facebook, you can do whatever you want. I just think it was is good. Today's headlines in the morning paper, yesterday's headlines, was one word, unspeakable. It is an apt word. What happened yesterday in Connecticut and earlier this week in an Oregon mall or You guys might have seen on the news the Memphis police officer that was shot and leaves behind four children. What happened is indeed unspeakable. What sense are we to make of this? Apart from the enormous sorrow that surely we must feel for a group of parents whose kindergartners have been senselessly murdered, what redemptive response is open to us? He says, I humbly submit this. He starts with a quote from C.S. Lewis in Abolition of Man, and the quote says this, some of you may be familiar with it, it says, In all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation. We continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. 
We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful, or the horses be fruitful. This culture in which we live, Dr. Young says, has attacked and opposed just about every moral underpinning that gives a bit of structure and sense to life, from the biblical definition of marriage to the discarding of unwanted pregnancies. The culture has dismissed all sense of decency and morality and then wonders why so much evil exists. Castrated geldings simply cannot reproduce. A culture gutted of morality simply cannot live morally. We long for qualities that our morally vacuous culture renders impossible. That said, what redemptive response can there be? For us, as people who belong to the beautiful Savior, we possess a message that changes not just individuals, but whole societies. We must become, in the power of the Holy Spirit, more urgent in our efforts to broadcast a message that restores sanity to people and their culture. We must pray, yes. But pray not only for the sweet comfort for those in so much grief at this hour, but pray that the God of all grace will see fit to open blind eyes and exchange hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. We must give, yes, give, so that more may hear of this Savior in Central America, in India, in Connecticut, in Binghampton. You may expect me to say this, and so that I won't disappoint you, here it is. Jesus Christ is the hope of this world. His people must magnify Him. As for me, I know of no other response to these senseless tragedies. I love you loads. Jimmy Young. Let me pray one more time. Father, I am thankful for a man that leads us that will proclaim the gospel even in the darkest of days. I'm thankful for a gospel hope, uh, Lord, to transform the worst of people, the worst of societies even. God, I pray that you would um, convict us deep in our bones that this is indeed the gospel hope, uh, that you have intentions of transforming not just individuals, but whole societies, whole nations, people from every nation. And so I pray uh, that you would guide and lead us today. Um, I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm just going to unpack it. Uh, I think heavy times call for heavy messages, and so that's, you know, there's a heaviness about this. Uh, it'll be a little heavy as we unpack it, but hopefully we leave, you know, encouraged about the gospel. He says unspeakable, or the paper said unspeakable. Um, other words, horrible, right? It's tragic, it's painful, it's disturbing. Death is an enemy, and we don't ever need to pretend that it's not. The death of a child is many people's worst nightmare. So, what sense are we to make of it? Is there a redemptive response? There is, and uh, Dr. Young, I think, has wonderfully reminded us of that. But before, before we get into the redemptive response, I think we need to cover something else. I want to caution you with a couple of personal proverbs that I thought up last night that um, about unfitly words. 
An unfitly word is like a warm, wet windstorm on your wedding day. You know, you imagine that you're, it's your wedding day and um, it's warm enough to keep a nice thick layer of perspiration under your hair, which is like a nightmare the whole day and it's just agitating. And, you know, then there's frequent gusts of strong, uh, warm wind and rain. And so you have poofy hair and you have wet wedding clothes and then you have bad pictures and all you can think about is, you know, the next... 50 years, and you're going to have bad pictures. So it is with an unfitly word. An unfitly word, plain and simple, it's just frustrating. Second proverb. A bundle of cliches in a time of pain is like listening to the grinding of gravel. Uh, One of my pet peeves (laughs) is when it's really quiet and someone's eating like potato chips. You know, I can't handle it. I really can't. And I, I always have to say something to Tiff. She does it. I don't even mean anything. I'm not mad. I'm, it's just, I don't know what to do with it. You know, <laughs> if I'm in a, that would be, if you ever wanted to like torture me, you know, put me in a room and just give people plenty of kettle cooked potato chips. And it's a disaster for me. <laughs> so is a bundle of cliches in a time of pain, it's like chomping gravel. It's horrible. And I say all that to say there are extremely unhelpful responses to tragedy and pain. But because I think Dr. Young gave us a fitly word that I think is extremely valuable, I think we should unpack it. One of the themes in what he wrote is the search for answers, or at least that's what I've thought about when I was reading it. I'm going to read that quote again in his explanation of it, the quote from Lewis. And all the time, such is the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very qualities we're rendering impossible. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We remove the heart and demand a heartbeat, right? We make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Jimmy says, This culture in which we live is attacked and opposed just about every moral underpinning that gives a bit of structure and sense to life. From the biblical definition of marriage to the discarding of unwanted pregnancies, the culture has dismissed all sense of decency and morality and then wonders why so much evil exists. Castrated gelding simply cannot reproduce. A culture gutted of morality simply cannot live morally. We long for qualities that our morally vacuous culture renders impossible. You get what they're saying. There is a clamoring going on, right? I mean, this is so deeply painful for everyone. It's very real. It's painful. It's horrible. But if you pay attention in the media or, you know, maybe in a conversation with a family member or a friend or whatever it may be, to the way that so many are forced to respond, you know, it often amounts to a bunch of hopeless mush. It often amounts to a bundle of cliches. Many are searching for answers, right? I mean, this has left many, many searching for answers. And many are left wanting. They don't have anything 
to, to pile up. They don't have anything to stand on. Many are longing for a firm foundation while their lives feel swept out to sea. I think, what, I think we should take away a couple things from what Lewis and Doc said. Uh, number one, it is in times of pain and loss that the wayward life proves most futile. It's in times of pain and loss that the wayward life proves most futile. We live in a time of radical corruption and redefinition. We know that. And, and even uh, we call it choice, right? Or tolerance. Or heaven forbid, we even call it love. But it's nothing of the sort. Many of our cultural shifts are just pure folly. It's nothing short of choosing sin over obedience or choosing death over life. Choosing self over God. So why should we as believers stand for the biblical definition of marriage? Why should we fight abortion? First and foremost, because God loves the one and He hates the other. Right? He's not neutral on these issues. And that's really flowing from that. Nothing is neutral. Nothing is neutral. So... Altering the definition of marriage, which is about God, by God, from God, you know, for God. Altering the definition of marriage to suit the feelings and preference of an individual human. Even to suit whole societies, which we live in the middle of. It's arrogant, it's corrupt, and it's hopelessly futile. It cannot produce the desired end that it seeks, right? Someone asks... uh, Someone asked me this week whether or not I think people are homosexual from birth. And so I figured, you know, now's as good a time as any to speak on that. And maybe you think I'm off base. But uh, my response was that I believe many homosexuals have had homosexual leanings, if not full-blown desires, for as long as they can remember. For their whole life. Um, And you know what? I've had sinful heterosexual desires for as long as I can remember. For my whole life. Does that make it right? No, it doesn't. And this is not a neutral issue. There is God's way and there is the sinful way, right? There is a road that leads to life. There is a road that leads to destruction. We either hate God or we love God and our life proves which one we're all about. So God's way leads to life and restoration. It's grace. None of us deserve it. He rescues us to it and He restores us on it, right? But sinful ways do lead to corruption and death. The reason that the corruption is in the world is because of sin. So, to me, I always want to qualify what I say. To me, the homosexual issue is no different than a rowdy, unsubmissive wife or a husband that abdicates his responsibility of leadership with his wife and with his family. It's a matter of obedience to God and disobedience to God. He clearly defines our way in His Word. And and don't think that disregarding that or deliberately disobeying that is a neutral matter because it's not. Everything has a trajectory, right? Obedience has a trajectory for life and restoration. Disobedience has a trajectory for death and corruption. And for us, I think we need to remember that ignorance is not an excuse. God has revealed Himself in His Word, and namely in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and we have every opportunity to know what He said. Um, and so ignorance isn't an excuse. We need to find out what He's revealed to us. We live in a day when 
the horses are castrated and, and they're demanded to reproduce. You can't abandon the source of life and have life. You, you can't. And it's at this point of tension where so many are left wandering around searching for answers. How could this happen? What was wrong with that boy? He was evil. And we all are in and of ourselves. You don't think so? Wait till we get back to the Sermon on the Mount in a couple weeks because this is a section that we're approaching. We all have the capacity for horrible, terrible things and we're all utterly helpless unless God intervene by His grace. And so we plead for His grace in our lives because we know how dangerous we are, right? And look, maybe you don't think you could end up there, but left to yourself over the long haul, you can end up anywhere. We're utterly in need of His transforming grace. And again, I just say, everything has a trajectory. Obedience to God, which is only by His grace, it has a trajectory of life and restoration. It breeds life, not only in your own life, but as lights in the world and salt of the earth, it it breeds life into other people's lives, right? Into the culture. But sinful disobedience breeds destruction. So number one, in times of pain and loss, the, the wayward life proves most futile. Number two... More positively, I guess, uh, nothing reorients lost people like pain. Lewis, in another quote that he has somewhere, said, Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Right? We're, without, without the intervention of God in our lives, we're blind, deaf, and dumb spiritually. We, just, we don't see, we don't hear, we don't get it. But, but pain has redemptive qualities. And he uses that to, I don't know, Stoke us. I don't. It just it rouses our deafness, and so for all of history, God has been bringing people to Himself through terrible situations. So we can, as believers that know that, we can hope and pray that in the searchings of the masses in the coming days and weeks, people are searching for answers. Are they not? People are longing to know what's going on here. How did this happen? In the searchings of these families and of these friends who are in such pain, we can hope and pray that God would break in, that He would make Himself known, that He would intervene. Because the, the questions that often arise in times of pain, not every question, but a lot of these questions are helpful questions, like, how could this happen? And, and this is the worst thing that I could ever think of. What hope do we possibly have? I'd submit to you, and many, most of you would agree, Christianity provides the true and complete answer to our searching questions. That doesn't mean that we understand all of it. That doesn't mean that we understand how all of it fits together. But the truth in the Scriptures, the the truth of Christianity, it provides all that we need um, for our searching questions. I say often, and I think about often, we live in a sin-stained world. But we hope in a God who is rescuing His people from the clutches of sin and death. We hope in a God who is transforming and promises to transform fully the world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we hope in the one true God, the God of Christianity, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a... We have a gospel hope, as Jimmy, I think, so 
wonderfully points out to us. We serve a Savior, and I say it here every week, and we say it in here all the time in this church. We serve a Savior who has fully and finally accomplished the salvation of His people. And He gives the Spirit to carry out that great work in us, right? There's nothing left that needs to be accomplished. He did it on the cross. He lived the life that was needed to be lived. He died the death that needed to be lived. He rose to confirm all of that was good. And now that He's ascended, He sends the Spirit so that we can actually follow Him um, so this, this great salvation can indeed spread to the ends of the earth. The good news is true. Jesus is enough. He is the hope of the world. Habakkuk 2.14, I've been thinking about this the last couple weeks, and I think I read it last week. It says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The waters do cover the sea, Right? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That is a promise, and that is true, and obviously we're not there yet, right? But we hope in a Savior who is enough. We hope in a God who has plans for the restoration of creation, for the redemption of His people. And in Revelation it says it's a multitude, a number so great, who can count it? It's not just some small pocket of people over here. He has plans to redeem the creation. People from every tribe, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. But obviously, uh, we look out and there's still work left, right? This last week has been a very um, sobering, painful reminder of where we are in that process. Yet, We have a gospel hope, and it's not just a hope for individuals, it is, but it's also a hope for whole nations. God is in the business of saving sinners from their sin, restoring what is broken and lost, and transforming us into the likeness of His Son. And He does that with each of us individually, but when you do that with a group of people collectively, you know, that's a bigger light. That's a bigger power. It can transform, as, as Dr. Young said, whole societies. And, uh, and, and that's God's plan. So I would say that I don't need to add any new application, but I just want to go back over what Dr. Young said. Um, he said, I'm going to read it again. For us, as people who belong to the beautiful Savior, we possess a message that changes not just individuals, but whole societies. We must become, in the power of the Holy Spirit, more urgent in our efforts to broadcast a message that restores sanity to people and their culture. We must pray, yes, but pray not only for the sweet comfort for those in so much grief at this hour, But pray that the God of all grace will see fit to open blind eyes and exchange hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. We must give. Yes, give. Give so that more may hear of this Savior all throughout the world. He says, you may expect me to say this, and so that I won't disappoint you, here it is. Jesus Christ is the hope of this world. His people must magnify Him. 
As for me, I know of no other response to these senseless tragedies. Guys, I think it comes at a time um, where we've been considering, I know it comes at a time where we've been considering light of the world, salt of the earth, these things that Jesus says about His people, and we, we reach this you know, part in the Sermon on the Mount where He's doing this thing in us and He's sending us out, right? He's sending us out into the world and we're not just... We're people with a message. And we're people with a message that transforms people and a message that transforms whole societies. And while I just don't think that we ought to be stuck in the... Look how horrible it is. It is. It is. And we have to call it that. It's unspeakable. It's tragic. It's terrible. It's, it's disgusting. But, right? The, but God... He accomplished salvation, and we are in this time in history when it is exploding. It's expanding. And so we must pray. We do need to pray for these families, for all that surrounds this in Connecticut. But we need to pray that God would have mercy and pour out His Spirit for gospel expansion in our town, in other towns. And Jesus is Lord, right? We talk about that often. And He's Lord of heaven and earth. That includes our government. And so... While we may not see that yet, we need to pray that 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 would bear fruit in our government, in our schools, everywhere. Just that that the Holy Spirit would be poured out throughout our societies. Um, And we need to minister. I mean, we need to, with a greater urgency, seek to participate in the restoration. Both by declaring and demonstrating the love of God that's shown to us in Christ. Um, And lastly, we need to give. And certainly, we can give more than our finances, but we need to give our finances. We need to give our time. We need to give our money. We need to give. um, We need to give our gifts, as uh, Chris's daughter has talked about. And um, you know, we just need to give ourselves to the Great Commission, the the expansion of the gospel. And um, I hope that for us, it will be. Certainly sobering, um, but I, I also hope that it will be encouraging to know that we're not at a loss here. Uh, we understand that we're in the thick of a, a terrible situation. Sin really has caused a very dark and destructive reality in our world. Uh, and I'm not saying that these six and seven year old kids, it's not, I'm not saying, obviously, we all die because we've all sinned, right? I'm not saying they did something last week and that's why. I'm just saying the situation we're in is because of the corruption which is in the world because of sin. And so, but God transforms individuals and He transforms whole societies by the power of the gospel. Amen. Uh, we have a few minutes, and if anybody has questions that I need to clarify about something I said or thoughts or comments, Please shoot.